with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, the Federal Reserve pauses the interest rate hike for the first time in 15 months, and we will also discuss who is going to regulate artificial intelligence. And now let's begin with our top story. The U.S. Federal Reserve left the interest rate unchanged, but signaled the likelihood of two more rate increases this year. The decision comes after new data showed that inflation, reaching record high last year, has cooled off significantly. CGTN's Owen Fackley reports. A breather for the U.S. central bank after some of the most aggressive rate hikes in years. The Federal Reserve opting not to increase its benchmark interest rate any higher than up to 5.25 percent after 10 successive rate hikes, when inflation began to spiral. But after topping 9% in June last year, those price rises have dropped. Eggs, one of the most visible symbols. The average price of a dozen now just over two and a half dollars. That's almost half their January peak, and it's arguably a welcome breather for Fed Chair Jerome Powell, who had to firefight a potential banking crisis when four regional lenders collapsed in the spring, as well as prepare for the consequences of the U.S. defaulting on its debt. Though this was averted, but Powell is cautious about pausing rates for too long, partly because inflation has dipped and then risen again several times over the past year and was four percent at its latest count. Owen Fairclough, CGTN, Washington. So, for more on this, join us on the line now are Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Vilmat University, and also Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Yan, first of all, the Federal Reserve Chairman said their interest rate will be left where they are for the time being, but he did signal that there could be interest rate hike later this year. So, why is this pause or skip? Do you think? Right. I think some of the Federal Reserve's FOMC members would wanted to call this as a skip、uh, rather than a pause, because, as you mentioned, they still have the meeting in July and September. And ultimately, I think they wanted to hike the rates to somewhere between 5.5 percent to 5.75 percent, which means they're still considering two more、uh, 25 basis points increases、um, in the interest rates.、Um, and the reason that they do that is because I think they wanted to take the time and see how、um, the interest rates impact on the economy、uh, is going to be.、Um, so they're going to watch more, you know, sort of. Um, the data from labor market, from inflation, you know, and so that would give them further indications of if they wanted to continue to hike or not. Now, granted, I think you know the Federal Reserve is really、uh, trying hard to because they are kind of in a very delicate place, right? They can fall between a hard place or a rock place、uh, because if they continue to hike, they could really、uh, you know lead the economy into recession. But if they don't hike enough, they worry that inflation is going to continue to you know be starving. Um, so I think they wanted to see if the interest rate hikes previously, the 10 times 500 basis point increase, are going to slow the economy enough, and also how the regional banks,、um, given the three bank failures, would they also tighten their lending standards, which then would allow the Fed to,、um, you know,、uh, hike less,、um, mm. which I think they, you know, in some ways they wanted to. 
somehow, um, you know, uh, avoid being blamed um, if the economy does enter a recession. Mm. So, Aina, so what do you make of the Federal Reserve decision or its strategy? I think they have a misplaced stra- strategy. I, um, I respect my, my colleague, but I think Jan is being very sympathetic to them. No one has any faith uh, anymore in the, in the Fed. They, they, they don't understand why they keep harping on this inflation number at a time when they're literally killing the economy. Uh, the markets were mixed in terms of the reaction, but at the end of the day, they're fighting the wrong battle. Um, you know, the, uh, rate hikes are very good at, uh, you know, dampening um, excess capacity and things like that, keeping uh, companies from investing in uh, additional plant machinery at a time when they, they're not needed. But they're not good at dealing with um, structural inflation, which has to do with services in the United States. You know, you, you go and you look at where the increases have been. It hasn't been in, in goods. Uh, there's been some, obviously, in oil and food. But the major amount of inflation is due to increased wages and costs associated with the medical field, educational, uh, retail, etc. Mm. So, Yen, this decision actually comes after the CPI number release. So what's in the core inflation that has still driving the prices up? Right. So I need to first make a disclaimer. Um, I'm not sympathetic to the Fed's decision, the Fed's policy at all. Um, I think I would stress explaining their internal logic of the sort of skip. But I totally agree. I think they're really shooting at the wrong place. Um, When you look at the inflation rate, um, you know, most of it is because of you know, like rental prices, rental costs that have mm-hmm. been rising. And the latest number was about 8% of the increase in rental costs. And so um, I agree. I don't think rate hikes could help very much on that um, because, you know, when you increase the rates, that means the supply of housing, the construction is going to slow down. That could only worsen the problem uh, because there's not enough housing. There's not enough housing that's affordable for middle class, for example. Uh, right now, you know, with all the new housing uh, listing on the market, um, the only 32% of them are actually affordable for middle income families um, compared to, you know, o- about 50% five years ago. So I definitely think, you know, hiking the interest rate is not going to do what they think would do, which is to slow down the labor market and to soften the wage growth. Um, the annual wage growth, by the way, has slowed down from 4.4% to now 4.3%. And that is barely keeping up with inflation. Actually, it's trailing inflation. So this whole idea that we can somehow hike the interest rate to kill the labor market and to kill that wage growth in order to fight inflation, I think it's really missing the point, um, especially when you look at the Kansas City Fed that just released a re- uh, research report that showed that nearly 60% of inflation, inflation in 2021 was because of corporate profits. Mm. So how does... Uh, hiking rates um, would help with that, right? So um, I don't think that the Fed is, is is making the right moves, and I don't think interest rate is the best um, instrument um, to fight inflation. But nonetheless, that's in their calculation that somehow, um, if they hike the interest rate, it can somehow reduce that you know core inflation rate, which exclude food and energy, mm. uh, which to them to them is still high at five point four percent. Um, now, I just want to make one more point, which is I think this idea that somehow we need to achieve that magical 2% inflation rate, um, it's very mythical. Um, there's no reason 2% is just the optimal, it's the golden rate, especially um, I think during the great moderation, the U.S. inflation rate is low um, thanks to globalization, thanks to you know cost-effective production. But now it's gone. I think the United States how, now has focused a lot more on so-called resilience, you know, French shoring and all these 
this would inevitably drive up costs and therefore prices. And so mm-hmm. I think you know they have this fixed target that they're obsessed with, and they have the wrong tool. Um, so the, the outcome can be only disastrous. Mm, so Yen, talking about the CPI, actually in May it shows that inflation actually ease. We still remember that last year the inflation it peaked at nine point one percent, and uh, that was a forty years high. But now it's down to four percent. So what do you, how do you look at it? Will the CPI numbers still be sticky for the rest of the year? I think that really, in some ways, depends, right? It depends really on the energy costs, um, which we know that has been going down. The gasoline price has gone down, you know, by about twenty percent from the peak. Um, but you know, that is not something uh, I think we we talked about before, right? There are so many moving pieces that could affect energy costs. Um, so it, it's not clear that this is going to remain um, to to continue to go down. Um, not to mention, you know, some of the other. Uh, costs that we mentioned, like rental costs, like car car uh, prices, um, and also you know some of the simply corporate greed and and power. So all these could definitely you know change the pictures. Um, mm. But I think what the Fed is trying to do is now, again, to signal to the market that you know we might still have rate hikes. So be careful out there and try to tighten your lending and try to soften your business activities. So then we may be able to you know bring down inflation without crashing the economy. But again, only time will tell. Um, if that signaling effect is actually working. Mm, so, Aina, so what do you think about the health of the U.S. economy in the face of the tax layoffs, the banking stuffs, and also will the inflation still be persistent there? Um, the, the health of the U.S. economy is not great. Um, basically, people are falling behind. Uh, wage growth is less than inflation. Um, people are maxing out their credit cards. You had another uh, roughly 0.1% uh, increase in credit card debt. Now, seven, total debt uh, for consumers is about $17 trillion, um, about half of the national debt. You know, you start adding them together, it seems like a large number. And, you know, you had the same increase in terms of uh, mortgages, about 1%. So, you know, th- these are not positive signs. The growth for the U.S., depending on who you talk to, could be, you know, around 1% uh, this year. Uh, conference, The conference board is predicting 0% next year, which is in essence saying that there's going to be a recession. So uh, right now, I, I agree. Everything the U.S. is doing in order to, you know, maintain its position, um, you know, whether this friendshoring, onshoring, all this stuff is going to continue to increase costs. And I would I really underline what uh, Jan said about how the globalization actually put money in the pockets of Americans because it reduced costs on everything from electronic goods uh, to machinery. And now those days are over and not because <laughs> anything anyone else has done, but by the U.S.'s own choice. So uh, the future is not looking good. The U.S. is not competitive. You know, we go back to the, the example. Um, you know, if you make a chip in the United States, it's going to cost you 30% more. So the question is, why would I buy a chip in the United States when I can buy it from Taiwan, South Korea, or uh, Japan? Mm-hmm. And uh, these aren't nations that the U.S. can cut off. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might not be buying Jap- uh, Chinese chips, but China is still lagging the game and they're playing catch up for their own domestic market. So not not a hopeful sign. Plus, with political divisions, you know, they kick the can to two years down the road on the uh, the massive national debt, but there's still no 
solution in sight. And this is this should be really worrying to people. Uh, already, you're, you're starting to see some softness uh, in terms of uh, countries uh, kind of tooling back on how many dollars they have. They were burned by these uh, increases by the Fed. And they're afraid that they're, since they're go- going to be more of them and the, U- and the Fed is so fixated on this 2% inflation um, that a lot of people don't think is realistic. So at this juncture, yeah, I'm going to have to agree with Yan. Things are not looking good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, actually, the U.S. has avoided the worst with the debt ceiling, but it still has a debt issue, right? So uh, Ray Dalio said there could be a shortage of U.S. debt buyers since the institutional investors who bought the treasuries a few years ago, they got burned by the uh, Federal Reserve's uh, rapid interest rate hike. So what do you make of that? And what do you think are the main reasons for the de-dollarization trend? Um, you know, I... I think definitely um, that the uh, you know investors would be watching out for you know what that inflate uh, what the interest rate hikes would um, affect the bond prices and the bond values. But I doubt there is lack of uh, buyers of U.S. Treasuries um, simply because um, there is no good alternative in terms of the safe, risk-free assets um, that is dollar-denominated. That said, I would agree that this will simply fail that the dollarization trend, meaning that, you know, dollar assets, um, you know, investors would diversify, um, you know, more towards other uh, currency denominated assets than just simply holding a lot of the eggs in the one basket. So I don't think that in the sense that there is a trade off between, you know, um, U.S. Treasuries versus other dollar assets, because if you wanted to hold dollar assets, the U.S. Treasury is still the risk-free one compared to other dollar assets. But if you are thinking about, do I want to go for the U.S. Treasuries or, you know, Chinese sovereign bonds or, you know, Japanese sovereign bonds or other kinds of sort of uh, risk-free sovereign securities, then there might be more choices down the road when you think about, you know, how the interest rate is going to change and how the dollar value is going to change. And so all these could come into into calculations. Um, And also, I think when it comes to, you know, when countries borrowing uh, international sort of loans, they would also think twice um, to go for the dollar loans, because when the Fed raises interest rate, you would have double whammies. Your interest rate burden is going to go up, your currency devaluates, and you are going to have to come up with more, you know, dollar um, in order to pay back. So all these would mean that de-dollarization is going to continue to unfold. I agree with INL. I think the more problem is the private debt, the consumers, um, that they exhausted their previous savings, um, or corporations, um, they're facing with you know economic downturn and they're not able to pay back their loans. I think those private debts are more of the problem and concern. Mm. So Aina, so what do you think about the uh, debt issue of the United States? Well, I agree with Yan. I, mean, I think I think she hit it all uh, all points on the head. The U.S. does not have a direction, and because it's so politically divided, it cannot come up with policies that can help address either its national uh, national concerns. So, Aina, you compare what is happening in the U.S. to Asia and Europe. If take a look at around the world, if you had one million U.S. dollars to you know invest, where will you bet on? Oh, I'd be betting on China. And I, I'm not saying that because I'm a, quote, friend of China. I, if you start looking at the stock valuations, they're at a, a very, very low uh, point uh, compared to other stock exchanges. Uh, China will recover. The one thing we we know or I know, uh, believe, 
about China is that it recognizes problems and it tries to solve them. It doesn't always do so perfectly, but it's always going forward. It does have the leadership and vision of where it's going to go, and it's able to execute consistently. Uh, the world is going to continue to rely on China until uh, the next uh, you know, the, the recession uh, recedes and uh, there's another boom period. So yeah. So how do you think does the China-U.S. economic and trade relations will impact the U.S. economy? Right. So I think the U.S. economy has been,、um, you know, doing well in the past thanks to their open and、uh, their, you know, integration to the global economy.、Um, they have been, you know, for example, the low inflation rate has been、uh, largely, you know, due to that they are able to import、uh, competitive price,、uh, you know, imports. Their current、uh, strategies, well, or the lack thereof, to engage with China, I think, is a big mistake,、um, and I think that would not be conducive to the U.S. economy, which you know requires the kinds of、uh, you know global dynamism in terms of financing, in terms of talent, in terms of trade in、um, in this sort of global economy, and all of these require the cooperation with China.、Um, so I really hope that you know U.S. and China will be able to have you know better.、Um, Uh, dialogues, better communications, and better strategies going forward.、Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, professor of economics, Willamette University, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at EU takes a major step towards regulating AI. Stay with us. Dida, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You're listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. So, who is going to regulate artificial intelligence? The European Union debated that question and agreed on landmark legislation establishing controls on how AI can be used. The EU is concerned that a new technology could pose a real threat unless regulated. Now, the European Parliament has adopted its position as the EU's future AI Act. So, first, Aina, what's the EU? Propose in its AI Act, and what's the Commission and the European Parliament want to try and achieve? Okay, so right now it's draft legislation, and they have basically three points.、Uh, the first one is that any AI that's、uh, going to be used commercially has to be submitted to them, so they can check it over to make sure that it complies with whatever standards they develop. Second, they don't.、Um, Uh, they don't want any kind of credit scoring. They've basically said that they don't want that, and they don't want、uh, anything that you know, like facial recognition, where you have instant recognition and you can follow people around. But this this is far from uniform. This is another situation where you have the EU, which is not really representative. Um, the people who are on the EU Parliament are not major politicians. They're generally、uh, people who are retired or have particular issues they want to express. And as a community, it doesn't represent the whole. So you have co- other countries within the EU who are not who are opposed to this or say it doesn't go far enough. So、uh, we'll have to see if it makes it through the the final phase. But、um, I, I do think that they are looking at the wrong end of this particular horse. 
Um, the issue here isn't what comes out, it's what goes in. And that means information. They should be looking at sanitizing, controlling the information because that's far easier than trying to control everything that comes out because you, you know you you cut off the head of one AI, it moves to another country, um, it can use the internet. Uh, it's virtually impossible to control it, just as this idea that you know everyone take a rest, take a six month moratorium. You know, people wouldn't stop. They would continue to try to find some competitive advantage, and this is the problem they're doing. They're they're going at this the wrong uh, at the from the wrong end, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so Yen, do you agree with Aina? What do you think are the main points for the EU AI Act? Right. So, I think unfortunately, I would think that you know it's important to both look at the input and also the output. Um, how do you regulate what information goes into it, and how you respect people's privacy? Um, but also, um, or property rights for that matter, intellectual property rights, but mm-hmm. also at the outcome or the output end, you also need to make sure that, you know, the uses of the information uh, are appropriate. Um, so, but I think the difficulty, of course, is that, you know, AI, generative AI, and any sort of technological innovations, they're always going forward. And so many of these very specific regulations are only playing catching up. And mm. so that's why I think um, many countries like, you know, US or China or UK for that matter, and now what they're thinking is really like principle based kind of regulations instead of specific concrete regulations. There are always, you know, pros and cons, of course. Um, some people m- would argue this kind of principle based measures are not concrete enough. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, I think the very specific concrete measures. Um, tend to lag behind innovations, and so you're always playing with, you know, catch twenty two. Mm-hmm. And so, Aina, the EU wants to come up with some AI regulation, but how is it going to work if other parts of the world are doing it too? And do you think they need to be joined up, or is there a risk of everyone treading on each other's toes? Well, absolutely. I mean, you, you're already seeing that with data. Uh, the U.S. has their own standards. The U.S. Uh, I mean, uh, EU has their standards. U.S. has theirs. China has theirs. Other countries are developing theirs. It it, it doesn't make sense. It's you know, w- w- what if we had uh, 50 million, 50 different approaches to Wi-Fi so that you had to have a different phone every time you you went somewhere? It doesn't. You know, it's it's not efficient. So yes, uh, the countries should be gathering together and identifying exactly what it is uh, that they think to need regulated so that there can be universal standards, especially to interoperability, the ability to exchange information, rather than trying to erect these walls and develop your own uh, ideas. I agree with Yen, uh, this idea of trying to play catch up every time there's an in- innovation is not gonna be work, uh, is not gonna work because it's gonna take too much time uh, the market is more sophisticated than the people who are regulating it, and uh, ultimately, you won't be able to control it because you, you know, the things you can touch within your own country, if the business is located there, is fine. But what are you going to do about something that's on the internet mm-hmm. uh, from another country? So yes, it needs to be standards, but. I will throw in, I don't think that Richie Sunak's, uh, the PM of uh, Britain's idea that uh, somehow Britain will be the standard bearer for this is going to work. I think they have plenty of other problems that they should be dealing with. I don't necessarily see this as uh, something where they're going to lead the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the EU believes that uh, there is an urgent need for a legal framework. So what do you think about that? Well, I think that's... Um 
That makes a lot of sense. I do think that it requires regulations of generative AI or AI um, in general. I think just one very recent example, uh, a New York lawyer um, who submitted a federal court filing decided at least six cases to support his case, but those cases actually did not exist. And that's because you know he used the AI chatbot, ChatGPT, which completely invented those cases out of you know thin air. So I think that is just one very um, clear example that you know if you are having a high stake um, economic or, or any sort of economic uh, activities and you're using you know ChatGPT, what if there's a mis misinformation and what if that creates you know biases? What if that leads to you know complicated legal consequences? And all these I think are very important um, uh, question, right? When it comes to how you really standardize and legalize, um, you know, the uses of this, um, you know, generative AI. Um, but again, I think it, it is difficult, right? Because you have mm. to sort of strike the balance between, you know, principle-based versus concrete measures, and you have to rethink about how you, you know, balance, uh, you know, regulating the, the, the technology without completely stifling. Um, the technological innovations. And so I think the previous question that you asked, and I think Anna has great insights, um, that yes, we do need countries actually to joint force, not only because that would help the regulations to be um, more uniformly you know, implemented, and that would also, in a way, um, help countries to enforce, because otherwise you always want to have the lightest standards and rules so that you can attract a lot of these tech companies. And that's not what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And what is also interesting here is that, uh, Yen, the United Nations is saying that if member states wanted, what they could do is set up a global organization. And it's also suggesting that they do not want the tech industry to be the leader in this game. And they, they believe the tech industry would do anything that is possible, not what is sensible. So what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I think definitely that that the United Nations or any uh, you know national you know uh, organizations, but I do think that it does require some kind of global efforts. Um, mm. Just because, as we just mentioned, right, that you need to have some kinds of uniform standards and so also uh, you know implementation of the rules. That's number one. Um, but I don't necessarily think that you should exclude these tech firms simply because I think tech firms ultimately benefit from clear, transparent, and well-enforced rules so that they don't prey on each other and cannibalize each other, right? Trying to, you know, fight the sort of the, the, the back door um, in order to win in the competition. So I think in some sense, it's actually a benefit for, for, the, for the tech companies themselves if there is clear rule and clear standard to follow instead of, you know, trying to, um, what, what you call like a street fight, right? So mm. there's no rule, whoever can come out, we come out. And I don't think that's necessary to their own advantages. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Vilamet University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.